It recognizes gallantry that goes above and beyond the call of duty in the face of an enemy attack. The tradition of awarding this honor began during the Civil War, and many of those who have received the medal have given their lives in the action that earned it. Today we add Lieutenant Michael Murphy's name to the list of recipients who have made the ultimate sacrifice. Deep in the mountains of Afghanistan, this brave officer gave his life in defense of his fellow Navy SEALs. Two years later, the story of his sacrifice humbles and inspires all who hear it. And by presenting Michael Murphy's family with the Medal of Honor that he earned, a grateful nation remembers the courage of this proud Navy SEAL. I appreciate the fact that we've got Barney Barnum, Tom Kelly, Tommy Norris, and Mike Thornton, Medal of Honor recipients with us today. We do welcome Dan Murphy and Maureen Murphy, father and mother of Michael Murphy, John Murphy, his brother, and other family members that are with us today. It's my honor to welcome all the friends and comrades of Lieutenant Michael Murphy here to the White House. Michael's decision to join the military wasn't an easy one for his family. As a Purple Heart recipient during Vietnam, Michael's father understood the sacrifices that accompany a life of service. Fewer than a third of those who begin this intense training program graduate to become Navy SEALs. There's little doubt about the determined lieutenant from New York. In 2002, Michael earned his Navy SEAL trident. They remember a patriot who wore a New York City firehouse patch on his uniform in honor of the heroes of 9-11. And they remember an officer who respected their opinions and led them with an understated yet unmistakable sense of command. Together, Michael and his fellow SEALs deployed multiple times around the world in the war against the extremists and radicals. While their missions were often carried out in secrecy, their love of country and devotion to each other was always clear. On June 28, 2005, Michael would give his life for these ideals. While conducting surveillance on a mountain ridge in Afghanistan, he and three fellow SEALs were surrounded by a much larger enemy force. Their only escape was down the side of a mountain, and the SEALs launched a valiant counterattack while cascading from cliff to cliff. But as the enemy closed in, Michael recognized that the survival of his men depended on calling back to the base for reinforcements. With complete disregard for his own life, he moved into a clearing where his phone would get reception. He made the call, and Michael then fell under heavy fire. Yet his grace and upbringing never deserted him. Though severely wounded, he said thank you before hanging up and returned to the fight before losing his life. to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We have a special guest on with us today. I'm on with Boyd Renner. He was a chief warrant officer for former U.S. Navy SEAL. Boyd, how's it going? It's going good, John. I appreciate you having me tonight. I appreciate you coming on. So you have a lot going on in terms of different projects that you're working on. We will get to all of that I would like to, if we can, to start from kind of the beginning of your military service and talk about, you know, what made, motivated you to join the Navy. And then if we can just kind of walk through your career in the Navy. Yeah, perfect. I'll do the best I can. Um, typical uh, military guy of my generation, in my opinion, uh, typical being I was a solid C plus student, you know, mid-level athlete and the GI Bill had just come out. And uh, the Navy seemed like a good option for me just because my buddy who I respected joined first. So I figured that it can't be all that bad. Uh, so this was 1988 when I joined. I actually had to drive about 60 miles to find a recruiter because I was in the middle of a one-stoplight town in Colorado. And uh, yeah, and when I walked in there, I took my seat, waited my turn, and there happened to be a all-hands 
a Navy magazine on on the on the table there. Some of your listeners who are Navy understand that's just a pub, you know a quarterly publication, I think. Well, this one just happened to have a, a Naval Special Warfare special edition uh, title to it, and that's kind of the magazine focused on that. So I was thumbing through that, and I was like, well, damn, this looks way better than you know maybe sitting on a ship for six eight months at a time, or a submarine, or you know whatever. I was like, maybe I'll try this. So I walked into the you know, the office when it was my turn, the guy saw every, you know, all 150 pounds of me. And uh, he's like, okay, that's a great idea, but let's get you to this A school first, this Navy training. So I joined the Navy. I'd never seen the ocean, never shot a gun. And off I went to boot camp and then on to aviation electrician school. I uh, still had buds in mind, pushed through. Uh, the, one of the proctors there said if I graduated second in my class, he'd give me a shot at Bud's, so I did. Um, showed up at Bud's, all 130 of us uh, at the time, had 130 students. There was no pre-training back then. It was just, you know, here you go. Here's your orders. Show up, and uh, now you're going to kick off SEAL training there in San Diego. Again, I'd still never certainly swam in the ocean at this point. I've seen it at boot camp, but I've never swam in it. And now I'm in a room full of the three biggest guys, most fit individuals I've ever been around in my young life. I had two guys from the Naval Academy. They were a football player, both football players, and I had a wrestler from Pennsylvania. So I guess a, a good good sort of caveat story that, that what shaped my whole career is the fact that these three individuals never once invited me out with them on the weekends or, or after we were done for the day. I, I didn't have a car, obviously. I was 19 years old. You know, they, they pretty much just looked at me as the guy that was going to quit as soon as this class started and that they wouldn't um, they wouldn't have to worry about me. So we ended up uh, the rest is history. And, and again, it shapes my whole career. And the first test that we have at SEAL training back then was a 50 meter underwater swim where you jump in the pool, you do a flip and then you swim down, touch the side and come back. It ends up being about 50, 50 meters, I guess, actually. Didn't seem that hard to me. I was like, well, I'm just not going to come up. That can't be that hard because uh, I really want to be part of this. And so I didn't. I didn't come up. It sucked. And I made it through. And then both guys that I was rooming with from the Naval Academy quit. They had three chances at it that day. They didn't want the third. And they quit. So now I'm in my room by myself with this Pennsylvania wrestler who now started to take a, a liking to me and at least is talking to me. And then our next test, a couple weeks later, I guess, was uh, they tied our hands and you know, hands behind our back and our feet together, and they threw us in the pool and taught us how to relax uh, and, and not freak out and just go to the bottom and kick up, take a breath. And again, it wasn't that hard, but this guy ended up quitting. So my whole budge experience, or at least that first phase there, I ended up having the room to myself because those three guys quit, and only uh, 16 of us from the original class ended up graduating out of that that 130. So that was BUDS. Uh, then uh, back then we went immediately to Army um, Jump School there at Fort Benning. You know, we've just been told and, and convinced we were the best in the world. Uh, and then we show up to Fort Benning Jump School where clearly the Army didn't want to hear any of that. So that was a, a challenge to say the least, uh, sort of come back to earth and, and, uh, and get through that. And then I was assigned to SEAL Team 2 there in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I did one Mediterranean cruise, and then I did a um, winter warfare deployment. Back then, uh, we specialized in certain areas, and my, our specialty at the time at SEAL Team 2 was winter warfare, where I deployed in support of the first war in Sarajevo, if you remember that. Yeah. Back in the day, uh, we were actually dropping MREs onto some of those cities under siege, and, and I was over there in Italy standing next to a big CH-53 just in case any of those went down. So that's how I spent my second deployment. And then I heard about this crazy unit called Naval Special Warfare Development Group uh, that was, you know, sort of the, you know, not talked about part of Naval Special Warfare. And I, I figured that that sounds like the next step. It only makes sense that I try out for that unit. Uh, so I interviewed for that unit. I was selected and then I made it through their, their selection, six, six, eight months or so, excuse me, and then I ended up spending the next 23 years of my career at that unit. I never left. I made it all the way up from E5 to E9, uh, on to W3, and finally retired as a W4. 
I retired last year, last November. I'm currently a co-founder of a really cool company. And uh, I'm also working as, a, as a, an employee for a government contracting firm, as well as working on about halfway done with my master's at Penn State uh, as of today. Well, I haven't gotten my final back, but I think I'm still halfway through. Uh, yes. Hopefully it didn't. Hopefully I didn't just extend that with my final I took the other day. But that's the macro view of, of my career. I know that was that's a lot. In fact, it's kind of depressing when you can say it all in one paragraph like that. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, especially with the last, you know, um, you know, 16, 17 years with the special operations kind of being moved from like the the kind of the ugly stepchild to the forefront of, you know, the U.S. military's, um, you know, combating or, or conducting this uh, global war on terror. Um, you know, I know it's a, it's a very busy time to be in special operations and specifically at a unit like the, uh, the Naval Special Warfare Development Group. So <clears throat> by the time that joined in and then uh, Global War on Terror really kicked off, you guys, I'm, I'm sure, were pretty busy. And Specifically, you were involved in an operation that was pretty well known uh, at this point. You know, there's been a book written about it. Uh, there's a movie. The movie was pretty good. And it's, um, you know, at the time, it was the worst loss of life for uh, naval special warfare uh, in, in their storied history. Uh, can we talk about that? Like, can we talk about, uh, you know, from the very beginning of when everything started to kick off until and, and your role in that? Absolutely. It's it's the it's the mission out of the hundreds and hundreds that I've done that I'm most proud of by far. Uh, never fired around. I didn't hear the enemy, but I knew they were shooting at us a lot. I mean, I didn't see the enemy, but I certainly heard them when they were shooting at us. Uh, and that was Operation, I think I think officially it's called Operation Red Wings 2 right now. Oh, the, the recovery, right? Yeah, the recovery. So the day it happened, uh, I was walking around Bagram, uh, just like any other guy was uh, there. We had our pagers on. Remember the days when we all had pagers? Well, we had them actually overseas. And I remember the pager going off, and it wasn't uh, 6 o'clock in the evening when they do the test. So I figured something was up. But I knew the helicopters were gone uh, doing something else, uh, our helicopters with TF-160. So uh, I was uh, what's called a troop chief back then, uh, right under the senior enlisted of, a, of an active squadron. So I was one of the four senior troop chief. I think I was a senior chief at the time in E8. And uh, so we go walking in there and they got all the flat screens up on the wall. And the first thing I saw was a predator feed of, uh, of, uh, of something burning on the side of the hill. And I knew that that couldn't be good. And I knew it was probably one of ours or we wouldn't be watching it. And uh, sure enough, uh, they told us what it was. They told us it was a rescue helicopter that was going in after uh, Marcus Luttrell's sniper team. And that it had uh, taken a rocket and that, you know, what you see is what you get. We didn't have a lot of intelligence, obviously. But we by this time, we knew that Marcus Luttrell and his boys were missing. And then we knew that a helicopter had gone down looking for him. So we started planning instantly. We, we flew from our base immediately to another base that was a little closer. Uh, planned all through the night. And our or I guess it was the day then because we we slept, we slept all day and worked at night. So now we've been up for a while planning, and our plan was to insert in, into the Korangal that night uh, as I, at the one of three fast rope spots available up there, it's, and I'll get to that in a second. So off we go. Uh, we, we, uh, we jump in the 47s, and, uh, and me and my sniper buddy were the first out to back. It was a 120-foot fast rope, which means basically a big, long fire pole, but it's a rope. And I remember putting my, my goggles down and looking out the window and the pine trees were, were actually higher than what our CH-47 was at. And uh, we were taking the blade, the blades was taking the tops of these trees off. So wow. we got all these pine needles and branches flying all over. And my buddy kicks the rope out the back and it is barely touching the ground. Uh, and the only reason we know that is because there's a small little chem light at the bottom and it stops moving for a second, and then it starts moving again. So you know it's it's uh, every bit of 120 feet. We're all pretty laid down, heavy heavy with equipment. 
So he goes first, and it ain't like the movies. He landed like a big gallon of mayonnaise, I guess is what <laughs> I like to say. And then, uh, and then I landed right on top of him. Both our night vision goggles fell off. And then about 20 heavy-laden guys with guns landed on top of us. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, was, it wouldn't have made any Charlie Sheen or, uh, or um, uh, the episode of six movies right now. But anyway, so we, we gathered ourselves up and we look around and it was, it was, now it's eerily quiet. The helicopter took away and they, they cut the rope. So now the rope fell and it's laying there. And I look around and there was literally, well, we've been at war now, what, four years, three or four years. There was probably 15 other ropes at that same spot. Uh, it's just all rotting away. No one's touched them. The locals just left them there. And I just thought, wow, we are really in someone else's backyard right now because, you know, our guys have been here before and here's all these ropes. And, and, uh, so we get out of the way real quick, form a nice perimeter. Rangers come in behind us, a, a ranger platoon, and we start patrolling towards the crash site. Now, at the same time, uh, a lot of different units were coming in from all kinds of different directions, trying to get to the crash site. I think there was SF units. There were, uh, another rangers, another seal element come walk, literally walking up from the base of the Korangal Valley you know, so that was a death march in its own right. We pretty much just had to walk along a ridge line to get to the crash site. And and I'll never forget, you know, we knew what we had to do. We knew it wasn't going to be pretty, but it, it wasn't until I actually started smelling the burnt wreckage and and just the, the fuel and the trees that caught on fire when it crashed that I realized that, you know, we're about to walk up on 20-something of our brothers that, uh, that we got to figure out if anyone's alive and if they're not. You got to get them home. So what happened, uh, you guys all saw the movie and the story, but what a lot of people don't realize is when the helicopter was, was getting ready to land, it took the RPG in the back of the helicopter and, uh, it, and the boys had already stood up. Uh, so they, they had unclipped themselves from the, uh, the, the helicopter. So they're just holding on right now. They're not clipped in at all. And when that helicopter started spinning, it, it put a lot of the guys right out the back. So a lot of our, Brothers, they ended up passing away from the impact uh, more so than the actual crash of them just falling out of the back as they get ready to to fast rope. Then, of course, the the crew and the pilots, you know, they were all clipped in and and they were, um, you know, we we, we were were looking for them for a while, put it that way. So once we got to the crash site, we set up the perimeter. The rangers were heroic in uh, in every way. Uh, They were they were manning all kinds of different ridge lines all around us with their saws and uh, heavy weapons and we were we were there with the pjs cct and, and some other elements and we had to go now and figure out how to get these boys from about 2,000 feet down below us to the top of this ridge where there was no place for the helicopter to land so that that took forever it was the hardest thing i've ever done it was way harder than than seal training but it was the right thing to do and and, and i wouldn't change it uh, for the world but while we're doing that, uh, we had to get explosives dropped in for us so we can create a, a drop zone at the top of the hill. Um, we started blowing down trees just literally so we could get the get all the guys home. And then about halfway, you know, a day or so into it, they figured out that that Luttrell or someone, they knew everyone was missing, but now they knew someone was alive. There were signals uh, that, that insinuated that at least one person was on the run. Oh, he had like a some kind of device, right? That that he was like pinging uh, signals off of, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of different things going on. You got to remember that all the guys had sensitive equipment on them, whether it be lasers or radios. So there were all kinds of signals going on that 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 someone, someone, or or, or multiple guys were still alive. But then there was a signal, an infrared signal, that showed that hey, this guy down there knows what he's doing, and he's signaling uh, for the aircraft. So they pulled us off off the duty of the crash site, gave us a map, pointed at where they think Latrell was, which on the map would look like about 1,200 meters. But in the Korangal Valley, it would be like climbing to Everest Base Camp twice. And uh, we, we thought we were just going to be there to secure the crash site, so we didn't bring a whole lot of anything. We brought, you know, standard stuff, water and food, and, you know, so we're already out of water within the first day because we, we did uh, – um, uh, recovered all of our brothers that first day. So off we go and we walked as far as we could. Sun's going down and, uh, and they start, we tell them, Hey, we're out of food. We're out of water. You know, guys, jackets are all ripped up. It's freezing up here. 
and uh, they so were, at this point was it just your your uh, your seal team or were you still with the rangers nope they 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 it was us and then the rangers they sent in another direction uh to to go um look for latrell as well so there's two maneuver two maneuver elements out there now with more trying to get up to us but right at this point it's just my element and the ranger element that have sort of branched off from the crash site to go hopefully find latrell and, and the boys um so throughout the next let's call it four or five days uh we just would walk you know investigate walk investigate uh call in a resupply bundle of water and food and and hopefully it made it close. Most of the time, we never saw it. They would parachute out of a plane. It would miss our ridge by 200 yards, but it would be you know, 5,000 feet below us. So we couldn't go down and get the water and food. So it was a rough time. Yeah, it was it was hot during the day. And then at nighttime, we're freezing. And, and all this time, we're, we're just so confused on who's alive, who's not. Uh, you know, uh, Do we have everyone from the crash site? It was just completely chaotic. Uh, atmosphere and confusing and everyone's sort of down uh, at, at the loss of life, uh, but hoping we can find some guys that are alive. And it was about that time, I think people, the, the listeners might remember in the movie where uh, uh, we had gotten intelligence that Latrell was located in a village. And that was accurate. Uh, it was actually an individual walked all the way down to another town, another forward operating base, hand delivered a note saying, hey, from Latrell saying, hey, this is, I'm up here. And then the ranger element that had broken away from us was already within about five clicks, if I'm not mistaken, of where they said he was. So we immediately both started converging on Latrell's location. And they made it there about, let's, let's call it five hours before we did. And uh, we got news that at least one guy was still alive, but we were missing the rest of that, that sniper element. So we basically turned around. Our orders were to go walk all the way back up to the crash site which we had just walked five days away from and then start looking for those boys. And then the decision was made that, Hey, this guy that shot the the helicopter, we need to go find him. So they basically extracted our unit, took us back to the, to the main base there outside of Kabul. And we basically spent the next week or so on call at the end of the mission, waiting to get intelligence on the guy that, that, that shot the helicopter down uh, they ended up getting getting him anyway uh, without our help, so that part was good. And then uh, then it was the, the the painful process of of doing the services for all these guys at Bagram, um, with with the Kaufmans on the C-17s, getting them all home, making sure we had everyone. That whole process, there was people up there on the side of that hill at the crash site for about two and a half, three weeks before it was all said and done, and we knew we had uh, at least all of the you know at least parts of everybody to know that everyone had passed. Uh, but yeah, it was, um, I'll tell that story till the day I die. And that's because it was, I was proud to bring all those guys home and uh, their families can now visit them at Arlington or, or any other cemetery. And uh, that, that was important to me. It's not, not the type of stuff you see on TV now, but it was heartfelt. And uh, yeah, I was proud of what I did that day, yeah. that week. I yeah, I remember when um when they first went missing, it was like all over the news back here in the states, and um, you know, I remember people were kind of like on edge. Uh, and uh, Lieutenant Michael Murphy, he's from New York, and um, you know, like along the highway, you know, like it was just crazy. Like everybody was kind of like paying attention to to it, uh, you know, hoping they'd be found. And and I think that's one thing that's almost like a misconception. Well, I I wouldn't say misconception, but when people read the book or watch the movie. Uh, people, I think, don't really realize how long this rescue operation took, uh, you know, after they, you know, Marcus was taken out of the valley or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, how much resources and time and effort went into it. Yeah, and it was, it's, it's, it's exactly what should be done whenever things like those happen. Uh, Black Hawk Down, you can go back through our history. You know, we don't leave anyone behind and uh, that this was no exception. Um. Yeah, but it was an exhausting uh, time. Uh, interesting enough, what other people don't think about is is all those guys that were with me, uh, all my unit and the Rangers, their family back home had no idea that it was not them in the helicopter. Because, you know, we when the beepers went off, all the Internet and phones went silent. No one was allowed to communicate home. So my wife had no idea if I was on the helicopter 
uh, or not for, well, she ended up finding out from my little brother, who was a SEAL also. So at least he knew that I was out there looking for him and I wasn't in the helicopter. But, right. you know, a lot of people don't realize that too, that there was, you know, a hundred or so families that had no idea what their status of their, their loved ones were. Now, I didn't know this at the time. I wasn't thinking of it, but my wife was like, there's no way you could have got a call to me at all. For, you know? right, and right. Uh, so, yeah, that was, you know, something I, I look back on at the pain she must have been dealing with for, for that period of time as well. Yeah. You know, the, the sacrifice that, you know, you, you guys are making and, and other, you know, men and women in the service obviously is tremendous, but it's also a sacrifice and a, a kind of a weight on the families as well, you know, because, you know, like you just explained it, you know, for, for all your wife knew you were on that helicopter, you know, and, and she's like probably worried sick and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and obviously that's like the worst kind of news a family member can receive. You know? But yeah, it, it's incredibly difficult. And, and, and that's why it's, um, people really look at it with admiration and respect. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, I wouldn't, I, I love the job. I love my time in the teams. Uh, I got the ultimate respect for the boys that are out there from all services. They're still deploying. They're still carrying the torch. They're still doing the right thing. Uh, there's, there's just, there's, there's bad guys out there and, uh, they don't like our beliefs. They don't like our culture. And, uh, uh those, you know, we got men and women that deploy all the time to, uh, make sure that, that we keep it at bay, at least away from our borders, uh, the best that we can. My hat's off to them. I, I got a lot of respect for the people still serving today. It's different than when I was in, you got to remember, I spent half of my career, literally half just training. And we didn't do a single operation. We didn't do anything that would resemble uh, a newsworthy article up until 2001. You know, we spent all that time uh, training and being ready. And then if you look at a, a SEAL that showed up in 2001, well, that, that kid, that guy, that's all he knows is war. Uh, there, there's nothing like it that's been, uh, that's been experienced in our society ever. Right. Uh, 16, 17 years at war. I've got good friends, including my little brother, that have six and seven bronze stars, uh, multiple purple hearts, um, 12, 13 deployments to the same places. You know, they've got almost eight years of their life away. In combat, uh, yeah, it's crazy. In, in combat. And just to say that, you know, not to put anything against the people that that, dis- that that was, you know, part of bigger campaigns, larger campaigns, but, you know, this war for the special operations community in particular is is just a long, long long fight that that uh that some people have been part of it since day one yeah it's actually something i was talking about the other day on a a recent podcast i'd done with a uh a former uh, australian navy clearance diver and we were just talking about the uh the burden that's been placed on special operations specifically in the united states um you know because over in australia they weren't as deployed and uh you know that's like stuff that's above their head you know with the politicians and whatnot and um but he was talking about like just some of the guys he knew over you know over here in the states and you know there's been articles written about it and you know the special operations community has in some ways been kind of burned out because of the constant deployments because people don't uh looking at the larger picture it isn't just afghanistan and iraq uh you got africa you got other parts of the middle east where there are terror groups that are connected to this uh, this ideology that they have and their hate for the West, and it's something that needs to be engaged and and fought on on all fronts or wherever they appear. Like um, the the situation with the Green Berets in Africa, um, people were really shocked. And I remember on social media, people were like, "Oh, what would they? What would the U.S. be doing in Africa?" And it's almost like. If you pay attention to the world, you know, world news, you'll, you'll kind of understand that there are terror groups operating uh, all over Africa, actually. Yeah, there, uh, it's certainly um, there's certainly enough in, uh, uh, there's certainly enough individuals and beliefs out there that do not agree with our culture. And they're all like you said, they're all over the world. And whether it be Africa or the Arabian Peninsula uh um, there's people over there from our country right now doing the best they can uh, to mitigate those threats. Uh, threats happen from the strangest places. Um, you know, you remember the, the the shoe bomber. You know, he wasn't from you know Pakistan. He wasn't from Afghanistan. He wasn't from Iran. I mean, he was right. literally from a place that no one had ever heard of before. 
in 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 Aden there, uh, Yemen. So, yeah, yeah that, that's a great point. Uh, the scars that these people have, uh, myself included, for for all this combat, it'll it'll be. I don't know how best to explain this. I don't know how you can put a, a qualitative number on on what what happens to an individual that does eight, 10 deployments overseas. And we'll find out, and our country's doing a great job with the VA, doing the best they can, but over that generation of time, and then have all these people getting out of the military at once, the burden that the VA have is just astronomical. I can't even comprehend the type of different injuries, the more severe injuries we have now, uh, just due to technology. Back in the day, if someone got hurt uh, in World War II, now, they weren't wearing the body armor and helmets like we are today. So you know, our guys are living through mass explosions right. on, an a- on an APC. They're living through it. You know, back in the day, they didn't. And now we have long-term care of, of, a, of a hero that's, that's lost two, three, four limbs. That's not something that's ever been part of our um, VA system. It's certainly not something we're used to dealing with. And, and I personally, dealing with the VA now for the last year and, and, uh, and seeing the support that I get, I think they're doing an outstanding job. They get a lot of bad press because I think that's an easy button uh, politically, in my opinion. But uh, after experiencing it firsthand and seeing the volunteers and the people that that greeted me at the door and told me it might be a little bit of a wait today, I got nothing but good things to say, and I I appreciate what they're doing for for our soldiers and everyone else. Yeah, I think in in a lot of situations, um, some experiences may vary. Uh, I think some places are probably are better than others in terms of the VA hospitals and whatnot. but, you know, it's just something to consider. It's a great point that you bring up is, you know, when they initially, when the invasion of Afghanistan initially kicked off, what at, at the time, what they were talking about with the president, uh, uh, George W. Bush Jr. and um, uh, Secretary of Defense, they were talking about this kind of quick get in, get out type of deal, uh, you know, go in, hit them hard and, and pull out. I don't think they necessarily thought that it would this would kind of happen this way where it took this long and you know another factor is the advancement like you said in in the gear that's worn the body armor and the advancement in the way that uh guys are treated on the battlefield and how quickly they're you know they're brought into a surgical team so that increases the number of people surviving wounds on the battlefield which the VA really just wasn't prepared to deal with. And um, it's something now that we'll kind of see how they adjust, uh, especially with the issue being talked about so much in the press and, and um, you know, movies coming out. Uh, that The movie Thank You for Your Service just came out a little while ago. That's right. And they, they touched on that. Um, you know, I, I had the, uh, the gentleman that the movie was based on. He came on the podcast and we, we talked about uh, certain things and um, – you know, it's 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 uh it's interesting to to see where it goes but i think we're getting closer to kind of figuring out how to deal with it uh you know as seamlessly as possible uh, yeah, all good points and i agree it just comes down to resources you know the va was funded for a certain capability prior to 911 and then that requirement on the same resources grew exponentially during the war and it's going to continue to grow after the war because we're going to see these long-term injuries, these long-term effects, uh, PTSD and traumatic brain injuries. Uh, just as an ag- example, I, I, kind of a sidetrack here, but I remember in Iraq, uh, we, we hit a target and, uh, and a ranger got shot. And then uh, so I flew out with them and we're, we're in the back of a 47. It was a surgical 47. And on this 47 was an entire surgical team. And the doctor, I later found out, was actually from John Hopkins. And he was doing a year tour as a reservist. Wow. And he was a he was a dang heart surgeon. And here he is on a CH-47 operating under red lights. And he opened the guy's chest up right there on the flight from, um, I guess it was from Ramadi to, um, to Baghdad. And by the time we got into the green zone, you know, they were wrapping him up and, uh, and had, had saved his life. And That's that was... Incredible. It was just I had never seen anything like that before in my life. I mean, I I mean, I know they do a good job and, 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 you know, when they get to the hospitals, but I've never experienced someone doing surgery on a 47 like that uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, in Iraq. 
and then get the guy stable before we even land. So, yeah, hats off to all those people. And then that kid, though, he's alive now, and he's, he's going to take some long-term care that, that a lot of, you know, we as a country just weren't prepared for. It's no one's fault. You know, we've got the resources to fix it now. I hope, I hope we get fix it, and I hope we make it better. Yeah. So, so you've been to Iraq and Afghanistan over your career, right? Yep, yep. I did 10, 10 tours to Afghanistan and uh, a couple to Iraq. Okay, and um, and and what was just? I'm, I'm assuming you know, being in the the teams that long, you've kind of had different specialties. And um, can you talk about some of the things you've done, like over your career, as far as like uh, schools and stuff like that? Yeah, uh, I, I found out early in my career. I guess it was just my dad uh, when I grew up basically told me once you get in there, volunteer for all the stuff that no one wants to do, uh, and then you'll do well. So I made that sort of my goal to, um, to do that. Uh, so the first thing I volunteered was a, uh, a communicator, uh, a seal communicator where they sent us to this two month school, taught us, uh, I, I'm going to date myself here, taught us Morse code. We actually used HF antennas up in the trees and, nice. uh, the whole, uh, so that was my first one. And then right after that, as soon as I got home, I, uh, they had a spot open up for sniper school. So I went to that I went to sniper school. Uh, I went to uh, some, some survival schools when I was doing the winter warfare, um, as far as cold, cold winter survival and snow caves and whatnot, uh, and a couple other, you know, a lot of pistol, rifle, all those type of schools that, that all of us get. And then when I went to Naval Special Warfare Development Group, I just added to those those schools. Uh, I, I actually was a, a climber for my element, what's called a lead climber. So I'm the guy, the guy that's going first up the ship or, you know, if we've got some rock or oil rigs, um, I, that was, that was sort of my specialty for a little bit there. Uh, we did a lot of oil rig climbing back then, a lot of ships, um, climbing, going up and down ships, both at anchor and, and while underway. So I stayed, stayed doing the climbing thing. And then I, again, I got, uh, I did a lot of communicating, uh, while I was in the, the squadron and then the war happened. And then, uh, by that time I was pretty senior by then so i was in charge of guys and i had communicators and snipers and climbers under me and then uh all through the war i was pretty much managing the either a, a team of guys or or a group of you know three or four teams of guys uh, by the time I, I did my last tour in afghanistan at the end of uh, iraq at the end of 06 and then yeah then i transitioned to more of a managerial role from an e9 to uh, w3 and w4 uh, depending on who you ask in the community i either quit or i'm not a real officer so it was a strange place to be as a warrant officer mm. uh but i liked it you know i i i loved and i stayed at the same unit so i was i was blessed to to stay at the same unit the transition from an e9 to a warrant officer and, and continue to give back up until i retired last year so did, you went in um you went in enlisted and then became an officer how does that work or it's different for every service. Uh, for my path is, you know, I went all the way through the enlisted ranks and we had a program for warrant officers, which is a commissioned officer, uh, but they call it a warrant officer. Uh, um, where basically you, it started out, interestingly enough, as a way to maintain uh, expertise on ships, say in a nuclear plant where you got a, an enlisted guy that spent his whole career familiar with a certain plant or a certain dive platform in the, in the case of Navy divers. And, uh, and the guys made as far as he could make it in the enlisted world, but they don't want to lose his specialty. So they created what's called warrant officers. Every service is different. So I'm just speaking for the Navy right now. So I put in the paperwork once I made E9 and realized that they wanted to, me to go sit in a cubicle and, and, and uh, you know, get away from the fight. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to keep contributing. So I decided to become a warrant officer and I was selected and uh, luckily uh, once you make E9, you go right to W3, which is good for me because uh, I'm, you know, at that point I'm over 20 years of my career anyway, and uh, I was able to to stay at the unit and, and do my last uh, eight years, I guess, seven eight years as a warrant officer, about four deaths down from the one I left. So it, it was a good call on my part. Nice. Okay. So now I know. Um, <clears throat> you know, when when you're in the SEAL teams, like you know, SEAL Team Two or, um. You know, guys get their qualifications, sniper school, you know, communicating school, whatever. Um, but when you go into the development group, you know, do, do I guess um, 
the standards or, or the, the qualifications might be a little different. So would you have to like go back to sniper school, like to the, the development group sniper course, or would you be like qualified just be, because you went to the sniper school prior to joining that unit? Yeah. You know, when you go, when you transition to, 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 to a development group, you pretty much just start over. You're the new guy on the block now, no matter where you came from. Uh, and it's all, it's timing for most of people that decide to go to de- development good. It's just being at the right spot, um, uh, in their career, both professionally and so and within their own family life. It's a big commitment. I was lucky enough to be a uh, part of, uh, in my, in my time frame there where it made sense for me to transition. And uh, I went there and I made it and, uh, we, we, you just, you just start over and then you, you learn a handful of, um, more advanced techniques. So that's jumping, shooting, uh, skydiving it's it's all you know what i might do at seal team two jumping out of a plane at 12 five you know i might be jumping uh twice that uh at, at development group so it's it's just it's better resourced uh, we actually operationally are part of the part of the army and uh we take our orders from them and yeah it was a long answer to your to your short question but you start over all your quals still matter but then you have to learn how to do them in a different environment uh if you will. Right. Okay. Cool. You know, so, so being in the, the Navy for as long as you have, um, you know, kind of starting from the bottom, working your way up into that senior position and leadership role. Um, you know, leadership is something that the military is very good at teaching. And, um, but it's also something that is, um, it's something that translates into all walks of life, you know, whether you have a, a nine to five job or you have a business, uh, being able to, you know, properly team build and build relationships with people is something that's very important. Um, what are some of the, the key components of good leadership in, in your opinion? Well, there's a lot of them. I think the one that, that probably was most um, tied to the success in my career was that I just trusted the boys I was with. I trusted them. They were all solid, all war heroes in their own right. Um, just let them do their job. Uh, don't micromanage them. Uh, look at their plan, but don't get your hands in their plan, if that makes sense. Have oversight because you're ultimately responsible, but get out of their way. Uh, when we were doing routes in Iraq, uh, we'd get a target. I'd hand a grid to my, my um, E5 point man, and say, hey, I'll come back in about an hour and a half. And by the time I came back, he would have the whole entire route. He would have drop zones, I mean, uh, HLZs. And I'd look at it. I'd say, hey, are you comfortable with this? How long do you think it's going to take? How far is it? You know, how much cover and concealment are we going to have? And he'd show me, and I'd be like, let's do it. And I'd walk up and tell the boss that we're ready. And we'd board the helicopters, and we'd launch. And it's a very short process, and you have to be flexible. You have to be maneuverable. You have to, and you have to adjust. Once you get on the ground, heck, that whole field might have been flooded, and our satellite imagery was wrong. But you trust the point man to have a backup route, and he always did. And he took me on over 90 successful targets in a 40, 40 in a four-month period. He led every single one of them where we we would land somewhere, we'd walk somewhere, and we'd hit a target and come back. And uh, I, I didn't plan one of them. He, he did every one of them. So, again, that was a long answer to your question for leadership is just trust your boys. That goes in business. That goes in in society. The people that are under you are there for a reason. Uh, you're just going to get in the way uh, if, you, if you try to try to inject your um, thoughts and opinion and not oversight. So that's that's pretty much what I focus on. Just surround myself with great people and, and, and take credit for their great deeds. I'm, I'm kidding on that last part, but <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the way it looks sometimes. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I was I was blessed to be around the, the most solid heroes I could have ever asked for in my life. We guys with Navy Cross, uh, Silver Stars, and Bronze more Bronze Stars you can count count on it, and uh, you know, years and years of combat experience. So I was I was fortunate, and they made me look good. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the micromanaging thing because I, I was in a situation not too long ago where. Um, the person leading us was, was kind of a micromanager and um, it really felt hard to do the job properly with that kind of oversight, you know? And um, it, it really kind of annoyed the hell out of me, to be honest. And it's, it's just something that, you know, dealing with it, I'm like, I, this is something I never want to do to people. 
if I'm in a leadership position, you know, if people are kind of following me or whatever. And uh, it's just a good point to bring up. So you said your brother is also a Navy SEAL. You know, that's kind of cool to have a, you know, family member in the same kind of special operation unit as you. Ah, that was, yeah, that was great. Uh, probably, you know, gave my mom a heart attack. But yeah, <laughs> yeah my, my little brother was a SEAL also. And my middle brother was a special warfare um, combat craft boat driver called, uh, it was called um, yeah. SWIC. Now it was uh, UDT, not UDT, um, Special boat team, excuse me, I'm dating myself again. But, you know, back when I joined, they just had special boat teams. That was not a closed job. It was a collateral duty uh, tour. Uh, and then they changed it to SWIC. And my, my middle brother was one of the first graduates of that SWIC class. And then my littlest brother, uh, he he um, became a SEAL also. He was, was over at the same unit as I was. And oh, wow. we, ac- we actually uh, went on a couple missions together um, over in Iraq, which scared the hell out of me. Oh, wow. That's uh, pretty cool. But, yeah, it was, it was cool in a way, but man, it was, you know, not something I'd want to live through again because I spent right. more time looking to see what building he was on uh, than I should have been doing my own job. So, yeah, I got out of country pretty quick and let him have the, have the ball. Uh, but, yeah, he, we're, all three of us are retired. I did 25. Uh, my little did tw- – I did 28. My littlest did 20, and my middle brother did 25. So we had a lot of years between us. Um, but we're all retired and moving on now and, and uh, nice. got, got all of our digits, so to speak. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. I, you know, having a family like that, um, that's pretty awesome. I, I know, I'm sure your family, your other family members are proud of you guys. Um, okay. So you very recently retired, um, obviously after doing anything for 28 years, it's, a an adjustment process especially when you were in special operations for that long, you know, doing that kind of work, deploying into combat. How have you found that process so far? Well, it's, it's interesting. I'll steal a quote from one of my mentors when he retired is that speeding train keeps going when you get off of it. I'll never forget the, the feeling I had when I turned in my badge and I got escorted down the stairs and out the quarter deck, quarter deck being the main entrance of a building in the Navy I got escorted out the quarter deck by the security guard, and, and I'm standing there, and uh, I just spent 23 of my year, 23 years there, and I realized that you know the mission comes first. You know the mission's larger than the individual, and I didn't expect a big parade sitting on top of a fire truck or anything, but uh, the fact that you know you get escorted out and and you jump in your truck and you drive off the base <clears throat> for the last time was a little humbling. It was humbling, but it's also made me refocus. Uh, and the best term I can describe, I think a lot of leaders will resonate with it is, is I left a tribe and then I had to go find a new tribe quick. And the sooner you find that new tribe, the less depression, uh, anxiety and, uh, and questions you will have, because the sooner you find that tribe, that means you, you got some guys to depend on. And I found it. I, I was fortunate enough. I was doing some government contract work, uh, pretty quick within a couple of days, and then uh, I started. Uh, I co-founded this company with a very good friend of mine that's that spent many, many um, trips supporting Gold Star families and moms and dads on his own dime with his foundation. And I joined that new tribe, and it's just it's just been an um, experience ever since. Like I, uh, that's my biggest takeaway for retirement for any listeners out there getting ready to or is just find your new place, find your new tribe. Don't wait around for it to come to you. Reach out, search for it looked on social media, find what one of your buddies is doing and saying, Hey man, you got, you know, can I get, you know, do a phone call with him? Uh, Cause you'll be surprised you know, what your buddies will, will drop to do. Just get on a phone call with someone they know might be struggling. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. Can we talk about the company and, and, um, and what you're doing? And then as well, you know, we'll talk about this new, um, endeavor that just, uh, just went public a couple of days ago. Yeah. Uh, so the company's called Endeavor Life Sciences, and what I absolutely love is that I get to wake up every day uh, now and, and for the last year and a half knowing that, that we are putting a product out there that's never been uh, it's never been available before. And, and sorry, my phone just rang. And uh, and now it's it's a way that people can stay emotionally connected uh, for what's. Uh, what's important to them, what, what motivates them. Now the product's called Everance. 
Uh, it's an it's a noun between forever and reverence, and what it is 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 a way that we have patented to add uh, DNA uh, safely to a new or existing tattoo, or just in your skin if you don't want to have it in a tattoo. So why? Uh, all your readers are like, well, that's creepy or that's cool. Uh, for the one for the ones that say that's creepy, let me explain why. I've been away from my wife for better more than half my life and half our marriage. And I don't have a single tattoo. I just recently got her DNA encapsulated in our product, which is a safe polymer, same polymer used in hip replacements, but at the micron level. And now I'm going to take that Everance, small white powdery looking substance now, which is actually her encapsulated DNA. And I'm going to add it to my first tattoo. Nice. Why would I do that? Well, my wife's my hero. She, um, she has cystic fibrosis. She's got about 50% lung capacity. She runs marathons, half marathons. Wow. Um, she, she wakes up every day, knocks out about an hour and a half of treatments, and goes to bed with an hour and a half of breathing treatments. So this is a way to have her with me long after she's gone, is, this, is, is have her evidence, her encapsulated DNA, into my first tattoo. Uh, and I'm hoping other people feel that way. I think a lot of them do and will. I think this is a product that, that military guys that travel or, or you know, travel away from their little daughter for a year tour, and they want a way, a way to carry that, that memory, that experience, that, that person with them via tattoo, which is a very emotional uh, thing anyway. Uh, people get tattoos for two reasons, emotional uh, personal expressions or an emotional connection, if you will. Right. Uh, and uh, for me, I'm looking forward to it. We like like you like you mentioned. We just launched about a week ago. Uh, you can look at the New York Times or Forbes or Inc. They got some wonderful articles about the product. Uh, we've we have the patents to encapsulate sand, soil, or seawater as well. Uh, wow. Although we're we're just going to do DNA for now. But my second tattoo that we've done for me, just because I wanted it, is we've encapsulated sand from that crash site that I mentioned earlier at Operation Red Wings. I took a handful of that sand oh, wow. when, we loaded, when we loaded up the last body. And uh, I don't know why I took it. I just did. I've been holding on to it for six, seven years. Oh, longer than that now. That go five, so yeah, six. Yeah, more than 10 years. And I just kept it in my pocket, and I've had that sand now encapsulated, and that's going to be on my second tattoo uh, it's going to be a set of dog tags. It's going to have every guy that, that I carried up the mountains uh, initials on it. Wow. It's a very emotional thing and, and it's hard to comprehend at first, but once people think about it, I think it'll actually help people uh, that are dealing with either demons or dealing with being gone or, or they just tired of dropping their kid off at soccer practice and not being able to watch them. You know, they just want to have some sort of connection to that. So yeah, I look forward. I appreciate you asking about it. It's uh, our website's called everance.life. Uh, you can look at it right now. It's got some great stories on social media of people that have the product already with their uh, daughters and sons and wives and husbands' DNA added to their their tattoo. Yeah, it's incredible. I remember hearing about it um, earlier this year. Um, a friend of mine from the UK, he was a former British Special Boat Service operator, uh, you know, tier one British Special Forces guy. Um and he had come to New York, I guess, to do some work with you guys. So, you know, one of your colleagues and I met up with him to do a podcast and he was just telling him, telling me about it offline, uh, off air. Sorry. And um, I thought it was really cool. And it, and it's really amazing because, you know, the, like you said, the two reasons people get tattoos are for kind of uh, uh, memory reasons or, you know, expression. Yeah. and Yeah. Personal expression and emotional yeah. connection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and I happen to know some of the tattoo artists that are involved in like the, you know, the, there was a whole list of like people helping promote and, and tattoo artists that you guys are working with. I know some of them because uh, there's some pretty big names here in New York City. Um, are you, are you getting tattooed here in New York or no? Uh, I'm not sure yet. I'm currently working with a tattoo artist out of Detroit, uh, um, for, for my first tattoo with my wife, my second tattoo will absolutely be in New York with, uh, with a special person. Her name's Virginia Elwood. She does incredible work with colors and that that's, who's going to do my second tattoo. Uh, I honestly, there's people with tattoos out there. There might even be tattoo artists. I didn't understand this culture at all. 
Uh, I've never had a tattoo. I never had a reason to get one until now. Yeah. Uh, but the good thing is now I get to wake up every day working for a company that I believe in and I believe will help people. Uh, and some of the tattoo artists now are my closest friends there in New York that you mentioned, Mike Rubendahl and, yeah, and yeah. Virginia and Stephanie. And, and they're just solid, solid people. And uh, to see their re- reactions to this when, when they're either adding their kids' DNA into their tattoos just brings a tear to your eye. In fact, I've seen a couple of them cry already. Yeah. Uh, when they, you know, when they get their kids' DNA put in their tattoo, and you're talking about people that have had hundreds of tattoos, and, right. but they just say this one's different. So I'm hoping a lot of people feel that way. It's going to take a while for people to grasp it and and understand it, and people are going to just say that's creepy, and that's that's cool too. Uh, but I tell you right now, I don't. I, I love it. I'm, I'm looking forward to my first one. Yeah, I'm 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 like 90% done with my first one. Um, Nice. Yeah, I got like a Japanese style tattoo. So I, I know like Ruben Dahl and like in, in New York, like the top tattoo artists for that style. It's like a small community. So everyone kind of knows everyone. Um, so and I, Derek Garver is a, another guy uh, who's involved with it. And he used to tattoo at the shop that I go to now. I met him a couple of times. Ah, nice. Yeah. So it's like a kind of a small community here in New York for like the Japanese style tattoos, which is what I have. And um, that's awesome yeah it's incredible and you know i'm I'm probably gonna get more and um i think i will definitely definitely uh get some dna work in there um oh, that's awesome what would you get what would you get do you have some special uh person or or yeah, well, you you know, know, or, a, or, or a pet even you know you can do a pet if you wanted to well i, I wanted to ask you so you know my father passed away two years ago from cancer mm-hmm. and um uh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, thank you. And um, we, uh, you know, we cremated his body. Um, w- would that would that work? Would that be able to work? Or, well, absolutely. I mean, we can encapsulate anything. Right now, okay. we're just going to do DNA. In the future, we're going to uh, bring to the world encapsulation of anything. We've done a couple one-offs for people uh, with ashes, uh, but what we'd like to do is just change the way people look at, uh, you know, an event like that happening. So, if you had known about this and had known that your your father was sick. You'd be like, hey, uh, you know, I want my memory to be my memory of you to be held with me forever. Would you mind? You know, this is a year or six months out of, of someone maybe, you know, coming to the end of their journey and starting a new one. Uh, and so we'd like people to think about it uh, beforehand. Um, we've had interestingly, we, we've done or can do uh, blades of grass from the top of the grave, st- uh, grave site, for example, because um, that has DNA in it. Uh, it's so. We've actually had a, a hero of mine that had cancer, got cancer from 9-11. He's a, a police officer there in Brooklyn. You might know him or heard about him. His name's Terry O'Hara. Just mm-hmm. a solid yeah. so, solid hero, got cancer. Well, I hit him up about four days before he passed away, and I said, hey, man, this is going to seem weird, but I'd really like to get your DNA because I know you're going on your next journey. And to hear the response that his brother had about the gleam in his eye and almost like a um, – a relief that that his genetic makeup, his person is staying behind yeah. after he passes. So my third tattoo is going to be a badge of him um, on my arm. His his um, his badge from uh, his police days. Wow. Uh, and then that's just me thinking about it early. I'm like, this is a hero. I want to remember him forever. I don't want to visit him at some creepy gravesite. It's with a bunch of people. I want to look down at my arm, look at his badge, and know that. You know, this this guy's genetic makeup, his his person is now part of me. Um, I'm, and I think a lot of people will feel that same way. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, you know, absolutely incredible. It's, you know, especially people who are into tattoos. Um, you know, when you lose someone close to you, it kind of changes the way you view the world. And, um, you know, like when, when the idea was first uh, told to me, I immediately kind of blew my mind. Um but yeah, uh, you know, it, it was great having you on. I'm I'm really glad that we were able to do this, and I know you're really busy, so you know, I want to thank you for taking out the time to do this, and I also want to thank you for your service as well. Hey, I appreciate. It. I wouldn't change it for the world. Again, I hope your leader uh, listeners can bear with me. I've only done two of these. I'm starting to get better. Had uh, you know, what's counterintuitive to all military people when they get out, and this would be my last thing is. Is, is trying to figure out how to sell themselves because mm. we've, we've spent an entire career not talking about ourselves and not being in the limelight. But when you're a civilian, you're allowed to do that now and, and you should take advantage of it. You should be proud of what you've done. Yep. I'm, I'm getting better about it. I have to write down notes 
my wife tells me, she says, oh, you're too vague. You need to give some more detail. <laughs> you know, but, but that goes against everything that I've been taught. And, and I'm sure every veteran out there is the same way. He just doesn't like talking about himself. But it does help to hear other people talk about their experiences. That's one thing I learned after long periods of counseling, after all my deployments. You can't hold it in because bourbon, right. bourbon and scotch don't help. Um, but, but talking with another dude, you know, you know, another soldier, another airman that does help. So, right. uh, well, I mean, yeah. it's, it's how, you know, back in the day when, uh, you know, we kind of lived in like a tribal type of, uh, settings when warriors came home from war, you know, they sat around the, the fire and told stories and, and the kind of tribe really accepted them. And I think, um, you know, when you look back at like the Vietnam era guys, they kind of got the worst deal. Um, but now, you know, there's a huge uh, support for the military here in the States. And with all this technology, social media and the connectivity that we have today, um, it's almost like I feel like a lot of guys when they get out should really take advantage of that and connect with people. And I'm sure it'll help them feel better if they're going through some some issues. No, well, well said, man. And, and I absolutely agree. It's helped me and I know it'll help everyone else. So I appreciate you having me. If you ever want to have me on again, uh, talk more specifics about some of the cooler things I've done, I'd, I'd be happy to do so. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a good night. All right. Thank you. You too. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely look forward to having you back on. All right, brother. Thank you very much. Have a good night.